Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the TR90 Body Burn 30 support call. This call happens at this time, which for me is 6.40 Pacific Time, 7.40 Mountain Time, 8.40 Central Time, and 9.40 Eastern Time. Thrilled to have you along with us. For those of you that do not know who I am, I am Susan Mann out of Portland, Oregon, welcoming you to the call. If you ever miss these calls, you can pick them up on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts by putting in Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Lomas, L-O-M-A-S, and TR90, or Frank Lomas and, uh, Frank Lomas, Solutions, the digit for anti-aging all scrunched together. If you're listening to this in the podcast and you want to catch us live, if you dial into 712-775-8972, and when it prompts for the code, put in 910022, you can join the call, and we would be thrilled to have you along with us. So since this is the TR90 support call, this supports your efforts with the TR90 program. When you're first starting out, it's that good, clean, lean meal a day, two shakes a day, three snacks a day, 30 grams of protein at at least three of those meals, seven plus servings of fruits and vegetables every single day, which will give you macronutrients, micronutrients, and fiber. Guys should be getting about 45 grams of fiber for good digestive health. And ladies, we need 32 grams of fiber for the same reason, that digestive health is really important. Taking your supplement 15 to 20 minutes before a meal is at all possible. If it's not possible, do take them with your meal. Still worse, just not quite as efficiently as it would have if you had been able to take it beforehand. And some people I know can't because... They need to take it with food, otherwise they upset their stomach. So, you know, if you're in that camp, not to worry. Still work, just not quite as efficient as it could be. Drinking plenty of water or fluid to stay hydrated, and the current thinking is at least one ounce of water for every two pounds you weigh. So if you weigh 100 pounds, you should be drinking about 50 ounces of water daily. But... As I said, it could be fluid, but there's trade-offs with other types of foods, whether it's coffee, tea, fruit juice, any of those. Do keep that in mind. If you're exercising heavily or if you're in a humid area and losing a lot of body moisture, you'll need to increase that to offset what you're losing in that body moisture. Seven to nine hours of good quality sleep a night, really important. Um, it helps your body do it bunch of system resets while you're sleeping. It helps set your brain up for making really good decisions for the next couple of days. And if you're not getting enough sleep, that's where I would start. I'd get the sleep and then start really digging into the program. Because the next thing is that 30 minutes of moderate to heavy exercise at least five days a week. And I just heard a TED Talk yesterday that talked about the importance of even just exercising 10 minutes a day um, at a minimum for staving off Alzheimer's. So it really is, and depression as well, but it really does help um, keep your brain active and keep everything in good working order. So as I said, this is a support call for that Tier 90 program, and today I'm sharing some information out of a book that is called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. It was written by Robert H. Lustig, MD, MSL. And 
last week I started sharing with you a little bit about metabolic syndrome and how this is the new scourge that we've got going on. And today we're actually jumping right into um, uh, the eth racial, ethnic, sexual sex differences in the metabolic syndrome and how insulin resistance becomes metabolic syndrome. So males with metabolic syndrome are seven times more likely than females with metabolic syndrome to have a non-alcoholic fatty liver, or NAFLD. Race is one of the biggest determinants of what diseases you are susceptible to. For example, blacks do not get the high triglycemia or high levels of triglycerides in the blood that the Caucasians do, but they tend to have higher blood pressure levels independent of body weight. Hence, despite having higher rates of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, blacks are diagnosed with metabolic syndrome less frequently. Conversely, Latinos have an increased prevalence of hypertriglyceridemia, but they have less hypertension. Hispanic males are approximately seven times more likely to have a, the diagnosis than non-Hispanic males. Blacks and Latinos also appear to be more insulin resistant than Caucasians. All of these data reinforce the fact that racial, ethnic, and sex differences in metabolic syndrome and its components make it very hard to use hard and fast cutoffs for the diagnosis. So how, how insulin resistance becomes metabolic syndrome, you ask? You don't have to be obese to have metabolic syndrome. After all, up to 40% of normal weight adults have it. Obesity is a quote-unquote marker for metabolic syndrome, but not the only marker. It is not the cause, whether it resides in fat people or not. The one thing everyone seems to agree on is that insulin resistance is the hallmark of metabolic syndrome. And thin people can be insulin resistant too. But how? And where? And why does the body become insulin resistant? Here is one postulated scheme for which metabolic syndrome in which metabolic syndrome occurs. One, metabolic syndrome starts as your body accumulates energy, storing it in the liver and visceral fat tissue. This makes the liver insulin resistant, which starts metabolic dysfunction, a de detrimental cascade of effects that damages every organ in the body. The second one, liver insulin resistance, causes the liver to transport energy improperly. The pancreas responds by increasing insulin to release to make the liver do its job. This drives insulin levels up even higher, otherwise known hyperinsulinemia, which causes further energy depletion into subcutaneous fat tissue and causes the persistent weight gain that drives obesity. Three, the liver tries to export the fat as triglycerides to be stored in subcutaneous fat tissue. The blood lipids rise to drive the dyslipidemia one of the risk factors for heart disease. Four, 
High insulin acts on blood vessels causing the smooth muscle cells that surround each blood vessel to grow more rapidly than normal. This process tightens the artery walls and promotes high blood pressure. Five, the combination of insulin resistance, lipid problems, and high blood pressure wreaks havoc throughout the body. This promotes cardiovascular disease, which can result in heart attack or stroke. Six, the fat in the liver causes inflammation, which drives further insulin resistance. Eventually, the liver can scar, which results in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and this can later progress into cirrhosis. Number seven, the insulin resistance and hypoinsulinemia in women can drive the ovary to make extra testosterone and reduce estrogen, resulting in polycystic ovarian syndrome, hirsutism, or excess body hair, and infertility. Number eight, as the liver insulin resistance gets worse, the body grows. That grows and the pancreas has to make more insulin. Eventually, the pancreatic beta cells can't keep up with the body's requirements, which leads to a relative insulin deficiency. Eventually, the beta cells fail, precipitating type 2 diabetes. Number nine, insulin is one of the hormones that cause cells to divide, and hyperinsulinemia is associated with the development and growth of various forms of cancer. And lastly, number 10, there is early evidence, although no means proven, that insulin resistance in the brain leads to dementia. Basically, the various diseases of metabolic syndrome are where virtually all our healthcare dollars are going. So understanding the these disease processes is essential for making any headway in our current healthcare debacle. So our first hint, the liver dilemma. Under normal circumstances, approximately 20% of your caloric intake goes to the liver. The liver uses the energy for three tasks. First, it burns some of it for its own metabol metabolism and livelihood. Second, when the energy source is glucose, the major energy source of all living things and the building block of complex carbohydrates, the liver turns the excess glucose into glycogen, which is a liver starch stimulated by the hormone insulin. Glycogen is the storage form of glucose in the liver. Glycogen isn't dangerous. It provides us with a ready supply of glucose should we need it. Third, the liver has to deal with the excess energy, which may arrive in several forms, as fatty acids from digestion of dietary fat or as amino acids from digestion of protein, the consumption of alcohol, or from the molecule fructose, which is half sucrose or table sugar, roughly, and half high fructose corn syrup. This extra energy is processed by the liver into fat. The liver needs to transport this fat out or it will muck up the works. If it can't, the liver can get very sick, very fast. Bottom line, in the liver, glycogen is good. Fat is bad. The thing that drives the liver fat accumulation, even in children such as Diana, 
who I mentioned a couple days ago, is a potential driver of metabolic disease. The second hit, reactive oxygen species, or ROS, and disease. Okay, that's one problem. What else drives metabolic dysfunction in so many tissues? Glucose is preferred energy source of all organisms on the planet. And if you don't consume glucose, your liver will make it out of what's available. Glucose metabolism occurs through two distinct pathways. The first is glycolysis, which converts glucose into energy in intermediate purviant liberating a small amount of energy. The second step is called Krebs cycle. It occurs when the mitochondria, the fats equivalent of a coal furnace, burns the pruvient down to carbon dioxide and water, liberating a lot of energy in the process. About 80% of energy intake will be metabolized this way. When your body burns energy, some toxic Metabolites break down, pro, break down products of a reaction, gets manufactured within the mitochondria. These are called a reactive oxygen species. Oh, yeah, it is species, ROS. They are the body's equivalent of hydrogen peroxide. And in some of the body, parts of the body, ROS are put to good use. For instance, when found in your white blood cells, ROS, are part of your body's immune defense system to kill foreign invaders so you don't get infected. But ROS are also the byproducts of normal energy metabolism. When they are made in any other types of cells, such as those of the liver or pancreas, they can do damage to the cell's DNA, proteins, or membranes. ROS require the help of antioxidants to quench them before they have the chance to do damage. That is the function of another part of the cell called the paresium, which is full of antioxidants. Some of these come from foods you eat in the form of micronutrients. Peroxisums live right next to the mitochondria and act as the mop-up crew for excess ROS. When the peroxisomes can keep up with the ROS generated inside the cell, you and your health, yourself stay healthy. When they can't, the cell either is damaged or dies. These two hits together cause the cell to, to crap out. When enough cells give up, you've got the basis of metabolic syndrome. I think I'm going to stop there. Um, for today and tomorrow we will be jumping into the four foodstuffs of the apocalypse just so that you know what's coming up on our radar for tomorrow. With that being said, if, at the top of the hour, if you scoot over to one Facebook, One Team Global Live, one of our leaders will be sharing some information on how to build a new skin business. And I'm going to take us off mute. This is Susan Mann for... January 16th, 2023, signing out, wishing you a great day and a happy Martin Luther King Day. And I welcome any thoughts or comments you may have.
forgot to put the star in the right place. Doggone it. <laughs> Punched in the code, and I'm going, why is it not doing Oh, got to do it on the other end. <laughs> It's so okay. there we have <laughs> I know, we all have our moments. <laughs> all right, you have a great day. Oh, I get to double dip poppy today, and I took on a dog walking job for at least for the next couple of weeks because um, a gal needed help with walking her dog in the afternoons because she had... Uh, lung surgery and she's still recovering from it and so it's like she needs to get the dog exercise but <laughs> she can't do it herself so started that and Buddy's a little sweet little dog cute little loss off so 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 are you still with that. the chickens are you finished with the chickens or are you still there uh, I <laughs> this is a funny thing I finished with the three chickens and the cat on Saturday mid-morning, and they've already, they were so thrilled with how I left the house and how happy everybody was. They've invited me to come back in a couple of months, so it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess this was a good thing. Oh, good. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I kept everybody good, safe, and healthy, so that was a good thing, and I cleaned up and made everything look nice. Oh, well, good. I'm glad. Well, have fun this afternoon. Oh, I will, because getting, getting little buddy out for a walk, even though it's for only 20 minutes, boy, does he want to pull on the leash because he wants to get back for his treat. <laughs> so it's a fast-paced walk with him. And with Poppy, I get to do, have her this morning and then again this afternoon, so after I walk Buddy, so that'll be good. So... It's just one of those things. It's going to be one of those days. <laughs> uh, well, and it's raining, so that's not so good. So you're going to be dodging the raindrops. Well, I, and the thing is, I've got a good weatherproof coat, so that is good. And I'm wearing I'm wearing weatherized gardening clogs, so that will keep my feet dry. So it's all good. I do know how to do this. <laughs> Oh, good. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. All right. Well, you have a good day. You too. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. Bye.